Welcome to the Wish Well Podcast, a women's integrative summit on health and wellness. A podcast hosted by Dr. Michelle Dang, a board-certified anesthesiologist and pain management physician with additional fellowship training in integrative medicine. This podcast will feature weekly episodes with women from all walks of life discussing their health and wellness journeys. Hi everyone, it's Dr. Michelle Dang with the Wishwell Podcast. Today's episode is Grace with Dr. Carmen Landrau. Dr. Landrau is a board certified physician who specializes in cardiology and is a professional keynote speaker who uses her experience navigating a male dominated and hierarchical career to empower other women to embrace their talents, regain confidence and obtain the recognition they deserve in their careers and in life to become phenomenal leaders. Dr. Lynn Drow has been a keynote speaker at conferences and events for over 15 years. She has participated in events for a few people from lectures for, for medical students and residents to non-medical events with hundreds of attendees and has participated in panels, workshops, and national TV interviews with excellent feedback and audience response. She is available for speaking to corporations, groups, workshops, and coaching sessions. I personally really enjoyed hearing her journey from fellowship into a keynote speaker. So this was a very fun episode for me to record. I hope you enjoy and remember to subscribe, leave comments and follow along for more episodes. Hi everyone, it's Dr. Michelle Dang with the Wish Well Podcast. Today I'm here with Dr. Carmen Landrau. Um, she is a board certified cardiologist and she's here to discuss um, her thoughts about health and wellness. So welcome. Thank you, Michelle. How are you doing? Good, thank you. All right, so tell us a little bit about what health and wellness means to you. You know, health and wellness, um, I think like everybody else, they give their own meaning. To me, it's uh, first of and foremost, taking care of myself, that self-care, putting myself first um, as much as I can, because realistically, we can't do it all the time, but always remembering that we have to do that for ourselves. And then, of course, um, those things that we cannot take care of, maybe not sweat it so much, maybe learn to deal with the curves that life throws at you. And... Mm -hmm keep life in an equilibrium more than in balance. Um, I think balance is a very static word. So try to maintain an equilibrium among all the things, on all the responsibilities that we have. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And so you, we spoke a little bit earlier. So you said that your word was grace. That's correct. Grace, um, as a physician, you know, it's so hard for us to give ourselves grace. So I had to learn the hard way. I learned that some things are going to happen and some things I can control, some things I cannot. But you know that as physicians, that's not how it works for us. In the day-to-day -day of our jobs, we are used to always being there, always doing the best we can, always being perfect. You know, there's no room for error in our jobs. A small error in our jobs means someone else's life. So we cannot allow that, right? Mm -hmm. But if we actually bring that mentality outside of our work, and bring it to our daily lives, our every step that we take, we live it that way, then it becomes a bit more complicated. It's very hard to 
engage with our families, have a productive life and also have a good life if we mm-hmm. keep thinking that way. So for me, um, if I give you my example, the way things started when, when we were starting our family and I was already working, I started with twins. So right then and there, life throws this curve. If one baby is hard, imagine two. And then um, I had some other complications and I was still in training. I was finishing my fellowship. So I had to be a great fellow and I have to be a great mom of twins that doesn't know exactly how to even take care of one baby, right? And then all those things kept happening along the way. So instead of, you know, looking back, hindsight 2020, we know that. Mm-hmm. I should, what I should have done back then, instead of just being so hard on myself, maybe I should have just taken the mentality of, okay, today will be, it was a bad day, tomorrow will be better. That's not exactly how it happened. I was having a lot of trouble trying to be a great doctor, being a great fellow in cardiology. And I was also one of the chief fellows. So it's something that added more responsibility. And on top of that, having these two babies that they depended on me 100% um, and being a great wife as well. So along the years, after talking to other women and networking with women who are outside of the medical field, I started to learn that not everything has to be perfect. That if today wasn't great, it's okay. You have a chance of having a better day tomorrow. If what my plans were did not come out the way I intended, well, they they came out and good enough is good. So let's start giving ourselves grace little by little, adopting a mentality of Maybe I can do good with just enough. And then other things that are not basically sustainable with just enough, then I can do way better if I let go of other things that are not as important. So it's been a process. It's been a, something that, as I said, I had to learn throughout the years. I'm not perfect. I don't have it figured out. But it's way easier when you give yourself grace and you allow certain things to be just good enough. Yeah, and I think um, that's something that many of us struggle with, um, giving ourselves grace and realizing that we don't have to be perfect. I think as a profession and also as females and as mothers, um, we have very high standards for ourselves and it's that type A personality. I mean, most of us who go into medicine do have that um, you know, issue with, I wouldn't say issue, but you know, very type A, very wanting everything perfect and just right. So it is, it is definitely hard and I definitely can attest to it being a struggle for me at times. And you mentioned, so you talked about having twins um, during your fellowship. And so I know we talked before we started recording that your twins are now 11 years old um, and you also have a nine-year-old. So tell me a little bit or tell us all a little bit about um, your path leading up to going into your fellowship. And I know that you talked about where you are at this moment, but tell us a little bit about Carmen before. Okay, before that, of course. Originally, I'm from Puerto Rico, uh, born and raised. I did my medical school back in Puerto Rico at Ponce School of Medicine. That's where I graduated. And then I came to Houston at UT uh, Medical School to do my residency in internal medicine. And I did my fellowship right there. Small world. Yeah, I did my, my medical school at UT Houston. Anyway. Yay. <laughs> so, I, yes, I also did my fellowship there. The last year of my fellowship, um, I was at one of the chief fellows. They picked two every year. So I was uh, co-chief with another uh, of the fellows. 
I was the only woman in my class. And honestly, it was so interesting because um, even though I've always been surrounded by men, you know, I've, I'm the first daughter of my, basically my, <laughs> my generation um, between my, you know, I have an older brother and I have older cousins who are men. So I've always kind of been surrounded by men. Um, it wasn't until I'm actually in medicine and working as a doctor that I understand how being a woman um, puts you at a different, in a different position than the guys, right? So I had to work really hard, prove myself. Um, I'm sure they saw something that they liked because they chose me to be one of the chiefs. And then uh, the chief fellows. So, and then I, when I graduated, I stayed with UT for, I would like to say 10 months until mm-hmm. I decided that I was going to open my own solo cardiology practice. Um, and what's nice, you, you talked about, you know, being pregnant uh, with twins during fellowship. Did you have any problems being the only woman in your class or chief resident during that time or chief fellow during that time and, and being pregnant? Because I know that's an issue with many women in medicine. It was a bit hard physically, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was lucky enough to have some of my attendings be very considerate. You know, if I was in the cath lab, they were like, okay, try to, try to stay out. We're going to do, you know, they're going to do their images now. So they didn't want me to be exposed to the radiation for that time in the procedure. Um, my partners, my peers, they were very considerate in many, in many aspects. In some other aspects, I just had to work as hard as any other woman but now pregnant with twins. So it was very taxing, extremely physically exhausting. Um, I have to be there every day on time, whether I'm tired or not. Um, I had to prove myself beyond reasonable doubt that even though I'm pregnant with twins, I can still do my work. Um, And it was a reality check. It was something that, okay, I have to now do this. I'm having a lot of trouble physically to even move. You know, what took me five minutes, um, to move. Now it's taking me 15 minutes and I still have to get there going from one conference room to another across the street, you know, because we have a clinic across the street and the mm-hmm. hospital. So going from the clinic to the conference room, I'm like, okay, everybody start walking. I'll be there at some point, but I have to be there. It's not that, Oh, I'm tired. I can't get it. Right. So I still have to make it. Um, and that was also one of the things that, you know, start, when I started thinking, okay, this is, something that I need to, do I really want this? Do I really, (laughs) am I really going to finish this program? Yes, I had to, because it was my last year. I -hmm. wanted it. But at the same time, I started to see people's behavior um, in a way that I wasn't expecting. In the beginning, many of the attendings that were um, in the private community, they were like, oh, wow, when you're done with your fellowship, we'd like to interview you, come work with us. And then once I had the twins, I had the twins the last, in May. So I, had, I wasn't done with my fellowship and it was my last year. After that, I have to tell you, it was crickets. It's like, well, now you have kids. Um, and so all these people- differently you felt after you had kids? After I had the kids, it was different. Um, it was, okay, all these people who are inviting me to work with them. Now it's like, oh, well, we chose someone else. Um, we went with someone else. You're not going to want to work now that you have kids. Like, what do you mean? I have all this training and I have student loans to pay. What do you mean I don't want to work? And I have, now I have kids. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that was interesting when I decided to go solo, solo uh, open my practice, one of the 
cardiologist had offered me to join him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he ended up choosing another person who graduated, a man. Mm-hmm. And when I asked, well, why, why couldn't you offer this contract to me? Well, he has a wife and he has kids. And I'm like, I have a husband and children too. What does that mean? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. So these things happened. Um, and I also, you know, got offered a few years down the road a job with a group. And when I asked them, well, why didn't you offer this to me maybe two years ago? One of the people in the room said, well, we didn't know you wanted to work. And it's a reality check I had to deal with. I had some, it's something that I had to face and understand that not because I have the preparation and because I have demonstrated that I can do the work, that's not enough sometimes for people to understand that I can, that I will do it. So it doesn't you make sense. You have to prove yourself even more so because you are a female and because you are a mother um, that you have to prove yourself even more to, you know, men or um, anyone that, you know, you want to work and, and you put in the time and you, you want to, you know, <laughs> work, right? Right. That I can do it, that I want to yeah. do it and that I can do it. It was, it doesn't make sense because mm-hmm. instead of seeing, wow, she has all these personal responsibilities and she is still coming, showing up every day. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, oh, well, she doesn't want to do it. She cannot do it. Or maybe, oh, well, she has a husband that's going to take care of her. Well, no, because if that was the case, I would have not done all this training. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't, it didn't make sense. That you wanted to work part-time or you didn't want, want to work as hard as, you know, what they, they would think as a male who doesn't have all those so-called responsibilities. Yeah, it seemed like in their minds, um, it's either you don't have the intention of doing it or you're not reliable. Mm-hmm. Um, somehow they believe that because we have children or because we have a husband that our needs are, have changed. Mm-hmm. And yes, they're, they're, they changed. However, now I need this job more. If we look at it in terms of needing a job, well, now I need it more because now I have children. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't happen to women. Usually if a man has a family, that's more welcome for mm-hmm. them to say, you know, this guy has a, a wife and kids. He needs the job as opposed mm-hmm. to a woman who's married with children. It seems um, that we don't need it because we have a husband taking care of our, our needs. Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge, um, you know, misconception. And it's something that we as females do struggle with having to combat, you know, after, we finish our training and we're looking for a job that people have these judgments on how much work we're willing to put in. Um, so, well, tell us a little bit. So you were, after your fellowship, you stayed on at UT for 10 months and then you transitioned to a solo practice. So what was that transition like and uh, what made you decide to go solo? You know, I was, I was at UT and I've always been very independent. Mm-hmm. I have to admit that, you know, I always like to work, not by myself, not that I didn't enjoy working with people, but I also enjoy my, some type of freedom, some type of autonomy, we, say, mm-hmm. we may say that way. Um, I like that I can set my own rules. I can be in con- more in control of certain aspects. However, mm-hmm. in reality, it was a shock. Um, you know, we train to be doctors. We train to take care of people. And that's all we want to do. Of course, we have to make a living. However, when you 
go out and you see for yourself that there are so many other aspects of medicine that you have zero training in, like how to, you know, how to bill for insurance, how to set up an office, even setting a multi-line phone, it's totally new. So yeah. all these things, I had to learn it from scratch. I had no, I don't know, I don't, any, any guide. I had just to find my own information, see how I was going to do it, talk to the phone company, the alarm, set up my EMR, all these things. And then you have to make sure that anything that you're choosing is actually going to be working for yourself and for the good of the business of the medical office. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a good school. At the same time, it's very lonely. When you are solo, of course, you're not in a group. Even though I have colleagues who are also solo and we cover for each other, we would take call and then we would share weekends. That's fantastic. In reality, each one has their own practice. Mm-hmm. And we don't necessarily know any trade secrets, any behind the scenes information from the others. And I think that's a problem in medicine. In medicine, um, we're very jealous of our stuff, if I can say it that way. Whatever is happening inside, behind closed doors, we don't let other people know. Mm-hmm. My experience has been, of course, now with the professional speaking, being in touch with people who run businesses, they share a lot of information, they help each other, and they join forces so that as a group, even though they're not in the same business, as business people, they can all come forward. And that's something that medicine um, is lacking. And, and that's my very own opinion. I think we could do a much better work talking to each other, just saying, I'm having a, a problem with this. Can you help me? Or, hey, I figured this out. This is how I did it. Not everybody's willing to do that. And that was impressive in, in the beginning because yeah. people that I that I thought uh, we got along well, we still get along well, but I know that I cannot go and say, hey, can you help me with this? Or how do you do this? And that yeah, was- Yeah, I think, I think um, to speak to that, it just really depends. Um, and I think, you know, we talked a lot about gender disparities and everything like that. Um, you know, my, my specialty is pain management and we have um, this group in Houston. Um, it's like the pain girls group and it's all female pain physicians and we all get together on a monthly basis to go out to eat and just hang out. And even on Facebook, we have a women in pain management group and that has been an incredible resource. And I mean, there are always gonna be some people who don't want to be completely transparent, but for the most part, I think, um, especially among um, fellow female physicians, we want to support each other. And um, so I think, you know, it just takes a small group of of people to get together and um, really just try to be transparent because we all are on the same team, you know, we shouldn't be jealous of each other or shouldn't feel like, um, you know, we can't share uh, what has helped us in the past. And so definitely think it depends, but, um, but, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that it's, it's, that's like my experience is probably the minority. It's true. But I see the new generation, the doctors that are coming out now, and people still our age in our age group are more aware. So we're talking more and we're more open to share than those before us. Yeah. Um, but I think they will still got a long way to go. So. Oh yeah, for sure. So, um, so you started your solo practice and um, so, you know, I'm sure that along the way, so how long have you been in solo practice now? 
since 2010, 10 years. Since 2010, so 10 years. So I'm sure along the way you had to definitely learn to give yourself grace. So can you speak to some of, um, about some of your experiences along the way in the last 10 years? Absolutely. You know, it's okay to not know the answer. <laughs> That's the first thing. Yes. <laughs> we don't have to have all the answers. But we can go look, look for them, right? We can find out somewhere, either someone, a mentor, a sponsor, or just your peers, if you can't find that person. And, you know, it's okay. One of the things that happened to me, if I, if I want to share, you know, if you might allow me to share this experience, sure. I'm very good at TEs. I love TEs. I'm not invasive. I do TEs. And I, I'm very proud of having good skill where the patient's I, you know, once I do moderate sedation, they're very comfortable. We, we come out of it. I get red images. And one day, one of my... Yeah, real fast. So some, some people may not understand what TEE is. So can you kind of just real fast explain if they're not in the medical field? Sure. TEE is transesophageal echocardiogram. An echocardiogram is an ultrasound of the heart. And usually what you see, people get some gel on their chest. And with a probe, the technician is taking images from the heart. Just like they do with pregnant ladies, take mm -hmm. images of the baby from outside. Well, we do it from the chest wall and um, we read those images. Mm -hmm. But a TEE is called transesophageal. We put a probe inside your mouth and into your stomach and we take images much closer to the heart. Um, it happens when we're doing a procedure or we need more definition for certain structures. And mm -hmm. that's usually done by a cardiologist. Mm -hmm. Some anesthesiologists also do it in, in the operating room, but mostly cardiologists do transesophageal echoes or TEEs. Mm -hmm. So I'm very, I have to say, I'm, I feel very comfortable with them. I'm very proud of my skill. And one day, one of the uh, interventional cardiologists says, hey, Carmen, why don't you, um, I have a case um, in two weeks. Why don't you come and help me, guiding me with a TEE. We were gonna, he was going to do a lariat, which is closing one area of the heart so that the patients don't have uh, clots formed in that area, uh, just to decrease the the risk of clot formation and having a stroke. Mm -hmm. And he's like, hey, why can't you help me? Will that be okay? I'm like, sure. And I kid you not. Not five seconds later, I started to feel fear. I was doubting myself. I almost started sweating. Like, oh my God, why did I, why did I commit to this? <laughs> I've never done this in a procedure. I don't even know what's the protocol. And I have to say, wait a minute. The first thing you need is how to do a TE. That I got it covered. If I don't know the protocol, I'm going to go look for the information. Right. What images does he need? What, how's the procedure? How long does it take? And I was so prepared that on the day of the procedure, as they are in the room um, getting the patient ready, I go in and I'm like, okay, let me go in. Let me go take some images, pre-images. I go take some images. Okay, let's go in, um, take images of the heart during the procedure. And once he's done, I tell the anesthesiologist, please do not wake up the patient yet. Let me take some post images. In the end, I have this great set of images pre, during, and post mm -hmm. that he could present to his board for, um, for research. And now they're like, oh my God, we've never had this set of images before. You need to come with us every time. Oh, wow. You see, it's like, we're, I'm doubting myself. I can't do this. What am I talking about? But no, it, you have the skill. You have the knowledge. What is it that I need to learn to make this happen? So instead of me beating myself up and I could have stayed there, I don't know what I'm doing, stumbling, you know, trying to have 
some type of image. No, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to show you here for you. And they were very happy. I think we all should learn that, that we can do it. You have it in you. <laughs> you can make it happen. Yeah. But just give yourself grace. Give yourself time to learn. Give yourself time to get to the information that you actually need for making, to make things happen. Yeah. And I think what you, you described is something that happens to a lot of us. I mean, I know that I have a lot of negative talk, a lot of self-doubt, a lot of fear going on, even, you know, before I do some of my pain procedures, um, depending on the difficulty of it, um, you know, I'm constantly going to a negative place. And you're right. I mean, we have to realize that we know what we're doing. We have the skills and, um, and it's okay to have a little bit of anxiety about it. And um, that's normal. But, you know, when you go down that rabbit hole where you're constantly in that place of fear and self-doubt, that's where you need to take a step and take a breath and um, give yourself grace. So I think that's a wonderful experience that you've shared. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about now. Um, I know you mentioned that you do some talks. <coughs> Talk to us a little bit about um, how you incorporated that into what you're currently doing in terms of your traditional practice. You know, I like to say that speaking happened to me. My passion found me. Mm -hmm. um, I'd never intended to be a speaker. I always wanted to be a doctor. However, when I was, you know, in training and after I finished, it was very uh, curious that every so often, it, whether it was a resident or a younger fellow, even sometimes a nurse would come to me and say, how do you do it? How are you a mom and a wife and you have your own solo practice and you're putting up with all these things that happen here? Mm -hmm. And little by little, I started opening my eyes to the reality that this doesn't just happen to me. All these things don't are not my own experience. They happen to every woman that comes through those doors. And many other women, as I've been doing this throughout the years, I've seen it outside of the medical field. Of course, when you're in a male-dominated career, it's more noticeable, but it happens in many aspects of life as well. So mm -hmm. as I was seeing that, other women would say, you know, I had a case and it was so complicated. We took care of the patient or I, I was leading a team and the patient came out of the room. The patient who was basically, you know, very poor prognosis comes out now walking and talking and goes home. And then that same person has the same woman has a difference with a male colleague. And now mm -hmm. she's being told that she's too aggressive. Well, why weren't you telling me I was too aggressive when I was taking care of that patient that nobody wanted to touch? Mm -hmm. So these things I could identify with, these things happen to me and other, uh, relate, other situations. Mm -hmm. And I started connecting the dots. And around 2014, I started to feel the effect of burnout. I was looking for something else to do. I wasn't happy with the system. Um, you know how doctors sometimes our satisfaction level is lower. We don't get treated as, you know, we don't get the respect that we need sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking for something else to do. And um, I started to look, what else can I do? Um, and then around 2015, 2016, the American Heart Association put out a communication. They sent an email asking for people um, to be in their speaker's view. And I'm like, okay, let me try it. I'll, I don't know what's a speaker's bureau. I don't know what I'm going to do, but let me just see what it is. Mm -hmm. Once they realized that I'm a female, that my first language is Spanish, um, and I'm a cardiologist, they're like, you come in with us. I'm, we're, we're never letting you go. So I started speaking for them. 
I've done interviews on TV, um, live events. I am the feature speaker for the American Heart Association Vestido Rojo here in Houston, which is the red dress for the Hispanic community. Oh, and wow. yeah, it's, it's a great, I love it. And I started looking back and every time I was on stage, I felt like fish in the water. I love it. The bigger the group, the better. And I'm talking about hundreds of people, 400, 500 people. Wow. I feel, yeah, I feel so comfortable. And Are you an extrovert or introvert? Because that would freak me out. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, if I know what I'm talking about, I'm very comfortable. Like right now, you ask me, I'll, I'll tell you. Even on TV, I had a situation about, when did they close uh, here in Houston? Maybe three, week, three four weeks ago. Not and I was at the TV channel. They, all of a sudden, we are not going to do this interview, but they want me to talk about something else. I'll do it because I know the topic. <laughs> if I don't know it, then I'll let me go look for the information. <laughs> no, and then the way things happen is that, um, you know that as physicians, we don't know that you can get paid to speak. Or at least in my experience, um, if you give a grant round, you don't get paid. If you give all this conferences you don't get paid you just give them so I did not know I could be speaker make, could make speaking as a career mm -hmm. until I found out this physician who um, she is now a professional speaker mm -hmm. she is not doing clinical medicine anymore and she travels around the world and it's fantastic so I said okay I want to do that I started taking coaching lessons and uh, learning about the behind the scenes of speaking and in front of stage of speaking, and I've been doing it now uh, professionally, I would say since 2015, 2016, five, four or five years, and I love it. I love it. So are you I, still doing clinical work? I still do clinical work. I still go to the hospital. I closed my clinic about four years ago in 2016. Um, I was going through a rough time. My mom is a cancer survivor, and uh, at that time, she, you know, she had her cancers cured. So um, she developed a weakness and she started to be confused. We thought she was having metastasis to brain. Well, it turned out that she had a respiratory tract infection that seeded in her hip. She developed an abscess. She became septic and she ended up in the hospital for three months. As I'm trying to run a practice, as I'm trying to lead my kids to school and do all the things that moms do and be a cardiologist, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and, and also growing my speaking business. So I closed my clinic because it's a lot easier in the hospital when you have the support from the residents, the fellows, the nurse practitioners, rather than being on your own in the clinic when you're it. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, with all the changes in the healthcare. So now I don't have a clinic. I do inpatient medicine here in the Texas Medical Center. And mm -hmm. I still work with some of my colleagues that they are still solo. So we kind of balance that out that way. So how often are you doing clinical work? Like, is that a couple of days a week or just kind of varies? I try to, I try to concentrate everything one week. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if I want to do so many hours, I'm going to try to do them in a week because it's easier. Um, that way it doesn't interfere with traveling and speaking. Mm -hmm. um, right so, now with the, with the COVID, of course, I'm not traveling, mm -hmm. but it's still, a, I'm not still able to do that. Well, that's, you know, just so incredible that um, it started out with you just, I mean, did you, were you just on the computer and saw this advertisement or um, posting about the American Heart Association looking for speakers and that's how it all started? 
Yeah, basically, they um, they sent an email. I'm a member of the American Heart Association, so I was getting the emails. Um, and then the Houston chapter sent an email, you know, if you wanted to be in media. Honestly, I had spoken for them years ago. I would like to say 2008, maybe 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. Somehow, uh, somebody contacted me and said, hey, we're going to be doing this uh, recording um, uh, in downtown Houston. We'd like to bring so- a cardiologist to speak about heart disease for the American Heart Association. So I did an interview back then. I did maybe one or two. Mm-hmm. I lost touch, but I always kept the emails. They kept coming um, until I, I think, you know, <laughs> when you're ready, things will happen for you. I paid attention this time, saw the email. They were looking for people to be in their speakers bureau. And I said, yes, and it all started. And now I have my own business, not just speaking for them, but I speak to corporations, associations, anybody who wants to you know, receive the message of women's empowerment, I'm available. Yeah, and I'd love for you to come on again at some point to share your story with that, just because I have so many questions relating to that as well. And um, to your point earlier about speaking about something that you know and you love, I mean, I can definitely, um, you know, um, attest to that just because I've done a couple of talks about integrative medicine, which is something that I am very passionate about. And the first major talk that I did at one of our society meetings, I was super nervous at first. In the first few minutes, I was really, really nervous. I've never really talked in front of that many people before. But then as I got into it, I just was so comfortable with the topic that, um, you know, I just relaxed and just really enjoyed just talking about what I love. Um, So it definitely is a difference when when you're up there in front of hundreds of people talking about something that you are passionate about and that you have a lot of knowledge about. So congratulations on making that step. Um, And I'm sure along the way, you you had to also give yourself grace for leaving um, majority clinical medicine and and transitioning to this other career. So so we're about out of time. Actually, we've been out of time, but I wanted to just hear your story about um, transitioning to doing your speaking engagements. Um, But since we're running out of time, I just wanted to uh, give you an opportunity to share how people can reach you if they have questions or if they, you know, want to reach out to you. Um, How can they do that? The easiest way would through my website, drlandrau.com, and that's D-R-L-A-N-D-R-A-U.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, um, and if you search Dr. Landrau, I am right there. And on all the other social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, everything is Dr. Landrau. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on today to share your um, definition of health and wellness, which is grace. And I will be posting all of your information on our show notes, um, as well as our website. So uh, you can look there. And thank you again so much for taking your time out today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wish Well podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe and follow along every week for new episodes. You can find us on Instagram at wishwell.health and at our website, wishwell.health.blog. Until next time, I wish you health and I wish you wellness. Thank you.